0: Welcome back to the Florida History Podcast. I'm Carter Krishnire. This is episode 131, and we're going to be discussing the building of highways through traditional African-American neighborhoods in the state of Florida today. I'm going to be joined shortly by Brooke Hines, who is the host of Lefty Lounge, uh, which you can find online. and, And she's publisher of her own Substack page, which I highly recommend. Particularly for those of you uh, on the progressive side of politics, and Brooke is a, a an independent thinker, so you don't necessarily get the the generic progressive takes or generic about left takes from her. So I, I highly, highly recommend that. And of course, she's been a writer uh, and continues to be a writer uh, for us at The Florida Squeeze, which you can find at thefloridasqueeze.com. But before uh, we bring in Brooke to talk a little bit about her expertise on uh, particularly the i four project through Paramore in Orlando, I want to talk about uh, the interstate highway system in the state of Florida. We're recording this a week after Governor Ron DeSantis said, and I quote "A road is a road unquote," which struck me as as kind of stunning and and Coming from a governor that is a Floridian, you know we've had some governors in the past who didn't grow up here weren't really Floridians, so maybe uh Rick Scott could be excused for his ignorance, for example if if he, if he didn't know the history of uh, of some of this stuff uh Governor DeSantis, I think a little more highly of in terms of just his knowledge of the state and, and understanding of the state's history, so I was quite stunned by his kind of flippant remark, uh, and this is regarding of course uh Transportation Secretary – Secretary, current Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg's view on the historic inequities created by the interstate highway system being plowed through cities. Now, that happened all over the country. I think we've talked on a previous podcast that uh, it was finally in Baltimore where uh, I-70 effectively dead-ended and didn't come into the city of Baltimore because there was massive protests And uh, a coalition of both uh, white residents and black residents that stopped that. And then the tide turned in the 1970s and 1980s. You had expressway revolts all over the country. And I want to point out, I don't want this to sound partisan because I singled out DeSantis, who is a Republican at the beginning of this. But the the main culprits in many of these cases of building roads where they were built were Democrats. So this is a very bipartisan thing where uh, Democrats were responsible for – just plowing roads through African American neighborhoods. Democrats here in Florida certainly uh, guilty, and Democrats in many of the the urban areas of, uh, of of the country. Democratic bosses. There was a politics of bossism uh, throughout the country. of uh, urban machines, etc., that were generally democratic machines. I mean, what happened in Chicago reflects completely on to me on the on the administration of Mayor Daley, who. Quite frankly, you know, was the most influential national Democrat, if you're really honest about it, in the 1950s and 1960s. I mean, you could put Lyndon Johnson and Sam Rayburn up there as the congressional leaders when Eisenhower was president, as as influential. But uh, Daley probably had more influence politically than than Johnson or Rayburn did, and even when Johnson was president. The things you see when you read the uh, accounts of Lyndon Johnson's presidency, the things he backed down from, if he ever backed down from anything, were because of Daley. He wouldn't back down to any member of Congress. He would bully them. He would put them in their place. He would give them the Johnson treatment, as it was called. But he was scared of Richard Daley. He was scared of Richard J. Daley. Anyway, uh, back to Florida. Expressway revolts. Uh, Particularly in the Tampa Bay area. So currently you have... The Gateway Expressway being built in Pinellas County, which is a project that is left over a portion of a much larger project that was left over from the 1970s and was opposed by residents repeatedly. And and uh, I think we've talked about this on a previous podcast, too. I-175 and I-375 in downtown St. Petersburg are left over or are kind of just short stubs of what were supposed to be longer roads, longer expressways. And uh, Florida did have um, – a few miles of interstate highway system that were still that were still available to them because other roads didn't get built, and so those two roads were designated as I one seventy five and I three seventy five, which both go into downtown Saint Pete, uh, connecting with I two seventy five. But in fact, they were supposed to be parts of larger roads which may not have gotten an interstate designation, but would have gone all the way up into Clearwater and and, and Dunedin and other parts of uh, Pinellas County from Saint Petersburg. So um, anyway. We're talking today about roads and historic roads in Florida, and I think the most famous example of this is, of course, I ninety five through Miami, which was originally supposed to be built along the Florida East Coast rail line, and instead, ended up being built right along northeast slash southeast Seventh Avenue, which uh, oh sorry northwest slash southwest Seventh Avenue. Uh, uh, seven blocks west of Miami Avenue, which tore it right through the area that was known as the Harlem of the South, Overtown. In 1961, Overtown residents began getting letters that they were being evicted, effectively, from from their homes, that they were being uh, uh, uprooted, and they were supposed to relocate within two to three months, right? Or or, or in some cases, even less time, or within six weeks in some cases. And so what ended up happening is uh, there was no appeals process. There was no process by which the residents could fight the road. Now we saw these expressway revolts later, but in 1961, particularly, we're in an era before the Civil Rights Act. We're in an era when uh, the uh President of the United States, John Kennedy, for his reputation as a civil rights crusader, didn't want to take on the issue. We're talking about an era when um, when the governor of Florida was Ferris Bryant. We're talking about an era when uh, there was really no recourse. So I-95 gets plowed, plowed through Overtown. And similarly, uh, several years later, before the end of the decade, I-395, which connects Interstate 95 and Miami Beach or the southern portion of Miami Beach uh, is now plowed through another section of Overtown and the area is decimated. And it was the Harlem of the South beforehand. It was a place where, where some of the greatest Black entertainers of the day or in history spent time. And many of them were people who could not Uh, stay at the venues they played, like the Eden Rock, like the Fountain Blue, like the Deauville on Miami Beach. So you had Ella Fitzgerald, Count Basie, Nat King Cole, Cab Calloway, among others, spend a lot of time in Overtown. You had W.E.B. Du Bois and Zora Neale Hurston, who's a Floridian. Uh, Joe Lewis and Jackie Robinson, among others, also lodge and entertain in the neighborhood. It was the Harlem of the South. I-95 and later I-395 plowed through the neighborhood, destroying it and destroying uh, what uh, we're calling now the Harlem of the South, right? That's uh, that's, that's a new kind of definition for Overtown. But it was called at the time Little Broadway, Little Broadway of the South. It was the center of African-American culture for much of the South. And it was a safe zone for African-Americans. But it was destroyed by the interstate highway system, so when you consider i ninety five and i three ninety five through Miami through overtown, it's hard to understand how Governor DeSantis could say a road is a road just because he 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 must know about this he's again he's not. Ron uh Rick Scott who's not from Florida probably never been to Overtown. Uh, so I uh I was really surprised by his comments. But anyway, let's let's talk about a couple other places in the state of Florida. So there's the Brooklyn neighborhood of Jacksonville, which is near the Fuller Warren Bridge, which I-95 cut right through and really displaced a lot of the African-American residents of the Brooklyn neighborhood. I should point out that the Jacksonville Expressway system was developed – maybe we'll have another podcast on this. Jacksonville Expressway system, which I've I've done a lot of study of, was developed separately from the interstate highway system. But the interstate highway system, I-95 in particular, took the pieces – through, through central Jacksonville, and made them part of Interstate 95. I-95 also proved a disruptor in Fort Lauderdale, where it cut right through some of the urban African-American neighborhoods, splitting them in half, and creating a lack of accessibility through the neighborhoods. And This was in the mid-1960s, after I-95 had been built through Overtown. And really did a lot of damage to the African name area. Of, uh, excuse me, the African American neighborhoods of Fort Lauderdale. Also, same thing in Pompano Beach. Same thing in North Miami, to a lesser extent. Same thing in Delray Beach. Same thing in Boynton. I ninety five went right through. I ninety five dips a little further east through Boynton Beach and cut right through the traditional African American neighborhoods in Boynton Beach, and the same thing in West Palm Beach and Riviera Beach. So uh, the road was throughout all of South Florida, was built through African-American areas. Miami, the most notable example, because as we talked about, Overtown was an amazing place and an important place in terms of African-American history and American, African-American culture at the time. We've had a previous podcast where we've discussed I-10 going through Tallahassee and how that was fought and defeated. So we don't have to spend too much time on that today. We'll just remind you, uh, check out that episode. Uh, it's in our archives. And I-10 was originally intended to come right through the city of Tallahassee, right along uh, the, the, the railroad tracks, which would have brought it right through the African-American area of, of Tallahassee, just north of Florida A&M University, and back out of town that way, would have destroyed the city, in my opinion. So that was defeated. The second plan to bring I-10 through on Tennessee Street, which also would have brought it right through Frenchtown, another traditional African-American neighborhood. one of the richest culturally uh, African-American neighborhoods in the state of Florida, that too was defeated. So I-10 is North of the, um, of the heavily urbanized areas of Tallahassee. And as I said, we did a previous podcast on this, but very easily I-10 could have been drawn, could have have been built right through the city Uh, through one of two routes, both routes that were considered would have destroyed some traditional African-American neighborhood. Now, I 275, which began uh, as I 4, or was originally going to be I 4, and then it became uh, the designation was going to be I 75, and then it ended up being I 275. I'm speaking through Pinellas County, uh, not through Hillsborough, uh, ripped right through the African American sections of St. Petersburg. And more damage would have been done to St. Petersburg had those expressway revolts that we talked about not happened uh, as they did in the 1970s. And it was a lot of suburban residents. And plus, there was greater awareness of what had happened to African-American neighborhoods, particularly after the protests in Baltimore about that uh, happening. Now, one thing that is positive in Florida compared to some other states is that interstate highways often bypassed medium-sized cities. So while the interstate highways in Alabama are built right through Mobile and and Montgomery and Birmingham, but Birmingham's a, a pretty big city. Uh, whereas the interstate highways in Louisiana go right through smaller towns, like in Jackson, Mississippi, go right through Columbia, South Carolina. They go right through town, Charleston. They come right into the I twenty six comes right into Charleston. Dead ends in Charleston or ends in Charleston uh, by the uh, by the bridge over the over the river, uh, which is now the Arthur Ravenel Bridge, right the new bridge there. Um, newer bridge, there, I guess, about 20 years old now. But um, I, when I was a kid, I went across the old bridge in Charleston, which was terrifying. Uh, one of the most uh, h- horrifying experiences of my childhood was crossing that bridge multiple times, uh, both as a child and then when I was a young adult driving over that bridge. But that's a that's a, probably for a South Carolina history podcast. Uh, but. Florida, those size cities in Florida, the interstates tended to avoid. So I-95 and I-4 meet outside Daytona Beach. I-75 bypasses Ocala and bypasses Gainesville. Later was built into southwest Florida, bypasses Sarasota, Fort Myers, Naples, comes across uh, and effectively bypasses the the key urban areas in Dade and Broward Counties. Although it cuts through, it's a suburban expressway through uh, Western Broward County. Same thing with Tampa, right? I-75 bypasses. That was supposed to be originally 75 East. And uh, uh, we did a a pod on that previously. And 75 West is what ended up being 275. But 75 East, which is now I-75, bypasses the urban areas of Tampa. So quite honestly, in Florida, it could have been worse. Uh, I-110 comes into Pensacola. That's another road I forgot to mention. I-10 bypasses Pensacola. I-110 came right into the urban area of Pensacola uh, and displaced uh, a fair number of African-American residents in uh, the southern part of where that highway is, south of Pensacola Airport. So it could have actually been worse. But a road is not a road. Okay? The roads were built in specific places for specific reasons. Uh, I-4 bypasses Lakeland. That's another uh, a city that was bypassed. So Florida, it's not as bad as in other places, but there are two huge examples that stand out. Uh, the famous example is Overtown, Miami, I-95 and I-395, both cutting through uh, uh, Miami. I would say to a lesser extent, I-195 cuts through a, a what was an urbanized area. It's now the Midtown District of Miami, but had been... Uh, traditionally an African-American area, Edgewater and Wynwood. Uh, Wynwood is now kind of hipster central, right? It's a, one of the trendiest places in the country. But Winwood at one time was a heavily African-American neighborhood, a, a very blighted neighborhood, by the way, when I was a kid. We had serious urban riots in Wynwood. So those examples from Miami and we talked about Fort Lauderdale and, and Tallahassee and Jacksonville, et cetera – uh, but Miami was one big one big example. The other big example is Orlando, a little less famous, the Paramore neighborhood, and I for Orlando. And I'm going to turn it over to my friend and colleague, Brooke Hines, who is from Central Florida and has a lot more knowledge about what happened there. And also, by the way, has a background in doing her, her master, master's thesis, I believe it was, on this very subject. So, uh, here's Brooke.
1: Hey there, it's Brooke Hines from the Lefty Lounge, and I'm joining Karthik Krishnire over here at the Florida Squeeze podcast to talk about the historic racism uh, that was ingrained into our interstate highway system and offer whatever insight I can from the standpoint of the uh, Orlando area and how the interstate cut right through uh, historic uh, African-American neighborhood Paramore. Um, also cut off, by the way, also cut off Eatonville from the rest of the uh, city. So this was something I think If uh, if you're familiar at all with urban planning, if you're familiar at all with the history of the interstate system in the United States, there has been a lot of racism built in to our interstate system, which is not one of the legacies we think about when we think about Al Gore Sr., who was uh, largely responsible for uh, helping create the system in the beginning. And that's not to call uh, Papa Gore a big old racist. It's just we lived in a different time then. And these there were circumstances that they were dealing with in their implementation that inscribed The racism that was extant into the system. Pete Buttigieg, who is now the Secretary of Transportation, he got out in front of the new infrastructure bill to uh, say, well, there will be money that will allow us to fix the racism that was built into the interstate system. And that caused a bit of a ruckus with people who are like, "Hmm, how can roads be racist? Well, this is how roads can be racist. When... The interstate system was built back in the middle of the last century. It's a definitely a a classic mid-century, mid-twentieth-century project, right there with ranch houses and uh, Telstar uh, grooviness. The planners and you know the people who are charged with actually going out and putting, uh, putting the engineers to work and getting the uh, shovels in the dirt. You know they had to find the path that these interstates would take. And they wanted these interstates to provide uh, transportation for industry and business. And in order to do that, they had to get real close into the city so that the you know trucks could drop stuff off and so on and so forth. To draw those maps, there was a lot of discussion. Some people didn't want giant interstates running right through their neighborhood. Uh, That would be everybody, actually. Nobody wanted uh, an interstate to run through their neighborhood. But guess who lost the discussion? It was the people with the least amount of power. And in just about every city where there is a interstate that goes through, and Orlando is one of those. I've lived in a, a few cities that have interstates that run straight through them. Uh, Nashville is another. Uh, they have a couple of interstates that that run through them. These roads historically have cut African-American neighborhoods uh, in, in half, cut them a, a Away from the rest of the city and made it much more difficult to uh, to traverse a city if you were on the wrong side of the tracks. You know this is this is a, a classic wrong side of the tracks thing. So you know you might imagine that railroads had the same problem you know because people don't want a railroad going through their neighborhood either interesting to me at least is in Orlando and in Nashville you actually see barricades between the tony neighborhoods and the historically black neighborhoods like it, totally following the road system so you know there's 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 barricades keeping people in their neighborhood and making it difficult for them to get out and then there's barricades in other people's neighborhoods that is making it difficult for people to get in and i think that we have to also uh acknowledge that there is a class issue here that is paramount so yeah there's a there's there's racism inscribed in these roads there's also classism because this is how the decisions were made it all comes down to power and it was, of course, you know, the the landowning, you know, white people with money who won these uh, uh, arguments because they were the ones who had the friends in high places you know, who were making the decisions. Now, is Biden going to fix this with the new infrastructure deal? So I see here that in his infrastructure deal, there is 110 billion dollars to repair the nation's aging highways, roads, and bridges. Uh, 110 billion dollars does seem like a lot of money, um, but how much does it actually cost to uh, to to fix these things? And let's ask ourselves too: Is it really the top level concern that racism is fixed? uh in the roads or is it a top level concern that these roads and bridges are made safe now i think it's obvious that they're going to spend that money to i would hope make roads and bridges safe uh and, and that that would be their their top level of concern rather than rerouting uh interstates around neighborhoods that at this point 60 70 years later are not the same neighborhoods they were in the 1950s take paramore for instance paramore you know you 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 live on either one side or the other of of i4 there's the uh there's the uh, uh paramore side and then there's the 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 other side where the central business district is central business district which is the downtown area Classically, these are the financial districts of a city, backs right up to I-4, and it's part of the reason why it's such a mess. Uh, it has absolutely outgrown its ability to um, uh, house the commercial real estate that is, quote unquote, needed for, uh, for or- Orlando. And I know this because I used to work in commercial real estate. For a large global commercial real estate company that did their own uh, research on vacancies as part of their public relations program. And also just to provide the intelligence to their brokers. Every week we got the research on what's vacant, what's being built, how much, how many square feet are available and uh, an approximation of how much square feet is in demand and the demand for square footage in the central business district was always far greater than the supply of what is there. Um, And so the way that this works, I just just want to take a second and and kind of flesh this out a little bit. Uh, If a big company wants to move to a city, they're going to start looking for real estate and they're going to have a number in their mind. They're going to say, we want a floor plate that is 33,000 square feet and maybe we need two of those floor pl- we need two of those floors to house all of our operations and our workers. Now, you might look at downtown and you might say, "Oh, there's a lot of empty space and there's a lot of places to put people." But if there's not contiguous two floors, you know, that a, that a company is looking for, if there's not a way to make that math work, then they're going to pass up on that location. And that, my friend, says how Lake Mary was born. And so that's part of the pressure that gets put on municipalities and cities to provide better commercial real estate. Now, let's talk about Paramore. Historically super important African-American neighborhood. The city of Orlando built itself around, and there's a lot of history there, and there's a lot of um history of exploitation there. Uh, You can find a ton of academic articles on this. And just two days ago, the Orlando Sentinel did an article on this. Now, let's not lose sight. I mentioned railroads before. Let's not lose sight that the city was also already Uh, divided by the railroads. And so you have in 1891, the city directory list black individuals uh, separately showing their occupations and places of residence. Most either lived in Jonestown or west of the railroad in the neighborhood that later became the segregated community of Paramore. So you had that one initial scar with the railroads. But then in the 1920s, Orlando systematically segregated the black community from the white community. In 1923, the city established a zoning commission and unofficially designated separate areas for black residences in 1924. And another way that this kind of racism is inscribed in our cities, uh, you see in 1927, Orlando adopted another zoning code identifying most of these areas already occupied by Black residents as industrial. All right. You see what you see what's going on here? They're just going to put the big roads, the big trucks and all of the big dirty business over in the, uh, the uh, black side of town and if you think gentrification is bad now back then in 1927 white citizens literally demanded that black people be removed from their own freaking homes this is how just absolutely disgusting all of this was um way back when And just to illustrate this further, even though Florida was one of the most sparsely populated of the southern states, for the period between 1882 and 1930, Florida had the highest rate of lynching per 100,000 of its black citizens at 79.8, followed by Mississippi with 52.8. And lynchings went on into the 1940s for two southern states one of them being Florida. And despite all of this, Paramore flourished. It was very successful and the business people there were very successful. Here's an example. Uh, Dr. William Monroe Wells emerged as a successful Black physician in Orlando after his arrival in 1917. Uh, he provided free healthcare for low-income Black Orlandans with the assistance of Mrs. Josie Bell Jackson. And besides his day job, Wells built a hotel and nightclub in Paramore that featured performers such as Ella Fitzgerald, Cab Calloway, and Count Basie. I mean, can you freaking imagine? And so back to the roads, you know, another thing that the interstate highway system created was suburbs and sprawl. So during this critical time when these inner neighborhoods could have used the investment, we were sending people out to the suburbs through our investment uh, strategies our infrastructure investment strategies now I would argue as somebody who has canvassed in the Paramore area uh, that and someone who is also very familiar with with district six and and, and where uh, people have moved to from Paramore out into the suburbs, uh, I would argue that. We need to maintain what is left of that historic neighborhood, but we also need to be cognizant of the fact that we have lost most of it for good. It has absolutely changed. It is never going to be the paramour that it was in the 1950s because we freaking broke it. And by the way, the paramour in the 1950s was never going to be the paramour that it had been in the 1920s. And so it goes. We do not live in a world without sin. We live in a world where we have to live with our sins. And what was done to Paramore and all over the country, those are sins. And we are not going to wipe them clean with new roads. We broke it and we have to accept the fact that we broke it and we're never going to put it back together. The people who had lived in Paramore have moved out into the suburbs because that is where the better schools are. That is where the better uh, uh, infrastructure for families are right now when when you look at Orlando. Orlando is not one of these cities that has a vibrant city core the way that that I believe Memphis has. Memphis has a vibrant city, inner city core in a way that Nashville will never have, in a way that Orlando will never have. And that's because the Black community had more power in, uh, in, in Memphis than they did in Nashville or Orlando. Less of a central city, Orlando is more like a network of villages. People who come to Orlando to work pretty much you scope out where you are going to work, where your building is, and then you drive until you can afford a place to live. If you have a lot of money, you have a very short drive and you can buy a place in College Park or Winter Park or, you know, out in Mills, uh, Mills 50 district, somewhere around there, Audubon. If you're a normal kind of lunch bucket kind of worker, you're going to have a longer drive. If you're lucky, you can stop driving around Windermere. Uh, but chances are, for a lot of people, they're having to drive even further. They're driving to Southern Lake County and Western Polk County. So I'm just saying that, yes, we have embedded a racist tradition in our interstates. But we missed the opportunity to fix it. We should have fixed it in the 70s, and we didn't. That, I think, was the, was the tipping point. After you got to, to Reagan and what came after that, you are never going to fix this. The last thing I want to say is that the way that we implement this infrastructure plan is going to be significant. $110 billion will fix some bridges, and it will fix some roads, and there will be some prioritization. But let's also be cognizant of the way that those projects are implemented and engineered. Are they going to be engineered as toll roads? Are they going to be engineered as money-making enterprises? Because I'll tell you, in my calculus for where I decided to work and how I decided to work in Orlando, I I was going to have a, a eight dollars and fifty cents both ways tolls only cost for driving out to Lake Mary from where I live in uh Waterford Lakes area and um you know a lot of good jobs were out there in Lake Mary but I got to tell you it wasn't worth it to me to pay $2975 a year in tolls only for the privilege of working in Lake Mary and having an a insanely long commute. That's almost three thousand dollars. Like, like that's um, that's a, as much as people pay in income tax in states that have income tax. And you know, we're paying that just to get to work. We do not need more public-private partnerships that uh, encourage. Uh, wealth extraction, you know, that that encourage companies to come and extract wealth from workers in order in in exchange for roads. I'm not willing to make that uh, exchange any longer after having to do that here in Florida, after living in everywhere else I live did not have toll roads. And I do not see an improvement in road building here that would seem to go along with the amount of money they've been collecting for the last 50 years. And uh, you know what? I'm going to leave it right there because I'm going pretty long. Uh, There is so much more to say on this. We need to throw some of these links down in the show notes so that people can continue uh, reading on, on the subject of racism and interstates and, uh, and also become more active in, how this implementation occurs thank you so much for having me cardic i am super honored to be on the florida squeeze podcast uh you guys check out uh, the lefty lounge if you are so inclined we are on all of your podcatchers apple anchor whatever uh, and also subscribe to my Substack because you get all of my podcast stuff there and you get all of my written stuff there so it's brooke hines just my name dot dot com and uh, it just updates every time I do a pod and every time I do a uh an essay it just knows it just sucks it right out and then there it is and it's like magic and that is Brooke Hines B R O O K H I N as in Nancy E S dot dot com and I'm out of here we will see you next time stay intelligent and beautiful bye.
0: Well, that was fantastic. Thank you, Brooke, and thank you to all our listeners for listening. Uh, this is an important episode. I think maybe it's an educational episode for those who don't know about the history and who don't uh, and who would probably understand a road isn't necessarily a road. And again, I, I was surprised by Governor DeSantis's comments to that extent. I think he probably knows better. Uh, he just maybe misspoke or gave a flippant, flippant comment to a reporter. But nonetheless. Uh, if he w- if if he does believe what he said, hopefully uh, this would educate him or the people around him. This podcast as to what. Happened in a lot of places. And look, I don't want, uh, last thing, I don't want this to be partisan. I, I single out DeSantis because he made the comment. But the the fact is the Democrats controlled most of these offices when this stuff happened. And, and in Florida, they controlled every office, right, outside of Pinellas County, which we mentioned was, was one of the focal points. But everywhere else in the state was controlled by Democrats in the 1960s. Maybe Brevard County Republicans started to win in the 1960s, but there, there wasn't really a problem with expressway building there. Uh, Until later, until the controversy over the building of the the Beeline Expressway uh, and the fork that was supposed to go down towards EGALI and and, and Melbourne, which never got built. Uh, But I want to make that clear. So anyway, thank you for listening to the Florida History Podcast. We will catch you next week.